Before I start 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, for those of you that were here last week, um, I thought Drew, Drew Warren did a great job not only sharing his testimony, but also sharing from Scripture um, just um, what God has called us to as believers, to be not just believers, but to be followers of Christ. And uh, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, go online. It's on uh, Facebook, on our, our church Facebook page. We Facebook Live, and then also um, you can listen online if you use podcasts. Um, but that said, I thought he did a phenomenal job. Uh, what I like about the way that God builds his church is that he uses the testimonies. Um, sometimes we get bogged down in finding more out about God when really reading scripture is not about finding out about God, it's about him revealing himself to us. But sometimes the way that God reveals himself to us is in how he works in other people's lives. Maybe you're going through a dry season. Maybe you're going through a time you're like, I'm not even sure if God's real or if he's at work in my life or even if he even cares about the details of my life, I'm so insignificant. And what I love about hearing testimonies is that um, people are able to share simply what God's done in their lives and it reveals something about God's character. Every testimony I've heard in the last year has revealed to me that God never gives up on people even when they do really, really dumb, foolish things, even when they reject him completely, even when they decide, you know what, I don't really need him. God doesn't give up pursuing people. And I love that because it causes me to want to never give up on people. And whether you might think this or not, there are times where I get discouraged and I am tempted to give up on people. And God reminds me through testimonies that he didn't ever give up on me. And so maybe that's you this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 5 uh, is where we're going to be at today. But I want to remind you about Peter. Peter is uh, one of the most well-known, uh, best relatable uh, apostles of Jesus. Um, an apostle means that he was sent by Jesus, specifically as one of the twelve. Um, many people revere him as the first pope. Um, I don't know about all that. What I do know is that Peter made a lot of very large mistakes. And when I look at the life of Peter, I see much grace. I see much forgiveness. I see much redemption and salvation. I, I see him being a big, ugly mess, and he's loud. So everybody gets to see it. And it makes me think of me, naturally. But that said, when you see the life of Peter... And you see all that he did. He rejected Christ. Just like Judas rebelled and rejected Christ, so did Peter. So what's the difference between them? The difference was, one had godly sorrow that led him to change his ways, to repent, and say, Jesus, teach me what I'm rejecting. The other was worldly sorrow that led him to sadness that looked like he was sorrowful, and yet instead of repenting, he hung himself. We see that in the book of Acts. So Peter's life is not one of those where you can put him in stained glass and go, man, this is just the example of how I want my Christian walk to go. Because the reality is he was just as big of a mess up as the rest of us. But he recognized it and he humbled himself. And because he humbled himself, what we see is a man that God exalted through humility. Now, humility doesn't come without humiliation. If you look at the life of Peter, I don't know about you guys, but some of the funniest things that have ever happened in Scripture that I just shake my head at, I see 
Peter doing them. And yet he got back up and said, you know what? I was never supposed to be great. Jesus is great. I'm not. I need him. And so through that, we see this bold man come out of nowhere in the book of Acts where he preaches to 3,000 people and they believe his testimony. They are one. They, they understand the gospel and they want to follow Jesus Christ. And that's the birth of the church. So Peter is now writing a letter to this young church. He's writing to them. He wants them to know who they are in Christ, all that Christ has done for them. Christianity is not about what we can offer Christ. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. But he offers us salvation, and then he does everything to obtain it. Once we believe it, he gives us the faith to believe it. And then through that, our lives are changed forever. So he tells us in chapter 1 who we are in Christ. He reminds us that we live before God our Father and we need him and his word is the way that he's revealed himself to us. In chapter 2, Peter writes about this chosen stone who's supposed to be the cornerstone of our life, Jesus. And then he goes down in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 2, and he gives us practical ways to live a life submitted to God the Father. Starts outside of the home. It's also inside the home. It's also in our jobs. It, it envelopes every area of our life. Being a Christian isn't about Sunday morning. It's not about Wednesday nights, if you're used to traditional Wednesday nights. It's not even just about devotional times with your kids at night. It's not about praying at meals. Being a Christian should seep into every area of your life. It should literally be like a flood, a torrent of water dousing you and covering you and making every area of your life touched by it. And so there's no untouchable area. Jesus is supposed to be a part of every area of our lives. And yet what we find out in chapter 3 is it also goes into our marriage relationship. And then he, he gives admonition specifically to husbands and wives. And then in chapter 3, about halfway through, he starts about talking about Jesus' suffering. Jesus suffered. And so th- there's this thing that comes into the church where Uh, There are people that teach that if you follow Christ, then you won't have to suffer anymore because the kingdom of God sets all things right. But the reality is we live, we are part of the kingdom of God, and yet his kingdom has not been set up yet here on earth practically. And so until then, we live for the kingdom of God, but we live in the world, which is ruled by Satan. And so how are we supposed to jive those two ideas does that mean that we will never suffer? Well, he gives the example of Jesus. If, if we are not supposed to suffer as Christians, then Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, suffered more than anybody. So if you're following a Savior that suffered, it would make sense that if we follow him, that we'll actually suffer like he did. Now, praise God that we don't have to suffer the way that he did. We're not suffering with the weight of the world on our shoulders. We're suffering because we live in a world that's against Christ. It's anti-Him. And if you think that the world is for Christ, open your eyes and pay attention. The people that run our world, most of them, are not believers. As a matter of fact, they want to do everything that they can. It's not coincidence to shut down the message of Jesus Christ. And they do it in subtle ways. So Peter talks to them about suffering. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think that it's strange concerning 
the fiery trial which is to try you. He doesn't say which might try you. He says it is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice, he says, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If this world was comfortable and Jesus comes back, what excitement is there in that? There's no tension. But if this world is hard and you feel like you're swimming upstream as a believer, and then Jesus appears and reveals himself, he returns as he said he would, there's relief in that. There's joy. Oh, good, it's over. Finally. Uh, For you runners doing your practices in the morning, there's something to be said about that finish line. You know, you run however long you run for your workout, or you run however long you run for the race. Paul referred to the Christian life as a race, if there's no end to it, I guarantee that most of you'd be like, well, then I'm, I don't feel encouraged to run it. If we're just going to keep running ad nauseum, I'm out. Even the best runners that love running are, are really relieved when they get to stop. And as believers, we're running a race. This race of faith is something that proves whether we believe in Christ or not. And at the end of the race, guess what happens? There's a finish line. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not always going to be this way. And so he encourages them to suffer, not as evildoers, not doing sin, but to suffer for doing the right things is actually something that's beneficial for us because it causes us to realize that living for this world will only cause suffering. But if we will live for Christ, the ultimate destination is not here. There's an end to it. So he says in verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So then in chapter five, which where we will be today and hopefully we'll finish, he says this, the elders who are among you, I exhort, So he's writing to these churches. Now, they didn't gather in church like we do now. A lot of them had home churches, but they still had governmental structure, though it may not have been, you know, super uh, governmented. It wasn't like this laid out, like, here's our constitution, here's our church creed, here's this, here's that. They were following Jesus, and as there were needs, they would set up structures for government. They had deacons that would take care of administering practical things. They had elders that were responsible for teaching and shepherding the flock. They also had people that were given to hospitality that would deliver meals to the sick and, and, and go and pray with people when they were infirmed. And so just like it is now, except we've kind of made it more formal. But that said, he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says to them, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Another word for compulsion is not begrudgingly, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, not all of us in here are elders in a church, but it is important to know what God expects of those who are leaders in the church so you can know where God's got good leaders for you to follow. The reality is not every church has elders that are qualified elders. Not every person that calls themselves pastor or sits on a stool or behind a pulpit or on TV or on the radio is somebody that you should be following. The reality is, Peter writes here, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I would encourage you in the day and age that we live in, where you can get on the internet and watch church and make that your church, you might even call it that, that you need to be among people as the body of Christ. There are certain things that the body of Christ can't offer you if you've you got a screen between you and them. If you say that you go to a church that you only watch online, the reality is there's no relationship, there's no accountability, there's no correction, there's only you're watching TV. Now, that doesn't mean you can't gain wisdom. That doesn't mean you can't gain spiritual insight. Reality is, I listen to sermons on, online all week. But several of those are actually my pastor. And I have a relationship with them. And they have the right to contact me and say, how are you doing spiritually? And they question me. I have men within this church that I consider elders that I want to call me out on certain stuff. And many times I do. So he says here, the elders who are among you, I exhort. Now the word exhort can mean to strongly encourage or urge to action. Urge, not like, hey, you really should. But hey, guys, shepherd the flock that God's entrusted to you. A strong encouragement, a, a challenge. Um, when I, had, uh, I was in Scouts, and during the eagle ceremony, they have a section called a charge. And if you think about it, a charge is something where you're challenging somebody. Hey, take what you've learned and go do it. Do it with all your heart. Uh, a man that was leading a battalion into battle, he charges his men, go and fight for the queen or the king. Do it with all your heart. Put your whole lifeblood into it. And so that's what he's doing here. He's, he's throwing down a challenge. And men, we like to be challenged, right? Some of us more than others, and some of us really hate challenges. Like, you're not going to tell me what to do. But in the church of God, Paul, Peter writes here, he says, the elders who are among you, I urge to action. And then he says this, and I think it's important that we take note of this. He says, I am a fellow elder. He puts them on equal ground with the elder, with him. Peter doesn't exalt himself and say, I'm an apostle. He says, I'm also a fellow elder. I know from experience. I know what it's like. He says, I'm also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. I think that any person that takes on leadership in a church should be someone who is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, you might say, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. You weren't there for that. That's not what he's saying. A witness is someone that observes something, whether it's through the written word of God, through someone else's testimony that agrees with the written word of God. But the reality is they've seen the sufferings. They reckon, reckon that it is true. They believe it. 
If there's somebody in the church that's a leader that doesn't even believe in the sufferings of Christ that happened, why would they lead the church of Christ? Why would they be a part of the leadership? But then he says, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So Peter, again, making himself equal with all of those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm also a partaker in this glory that will be revealed and has not yet been. This salvation is glorious. Jesus died on the cross. I've been saved from God's wrath, and I've been saved for eternity. But the reality is, his glory has not yet been revealed, because if it was, suffering would be over. No more tears. No more pain. No more doubts. We will see him face to face, church. Do you know that? You're going to see Jesus face to face. All of those of us that have trusted him personally will one day get to look at him in his eyes and say, thank you. For some of us, it's like that song I can only imagine. For some of us, we're going to weep and go, I'm so sorry. For some of us, we're just going to jump up and down and go, "Woo! I can't believe I made it. And for some of us, it'll just be silence of, I can't, wordless, speechless. And for some of us, it will be all of those at once. But the, the reality is, Peter says here, I'm also a partaker of that glory that will be revealed. I've staked my life on it. It's my hope. It's what makes me sleep at night. And so he says this, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, serving. Many times we look at a verse like that and we see it says be overseers. It's an exaltation, but he says serving. Greatness is in serving. Um, he says, not, by compul- not begrudgingly, but willingly. Have you ever told your kids or someone, hey, you need to clean that up? And they're like, all right, not, don't serve that way. You know, clean your room. Oh, why? It's just going to get dirty again. Willingly serve. Now, we're not talking about cleaning rooms, but sometimes as a shepherd, my job is to plunge a toilet. Oh, you know, but, but the reality is that's what God's called leaders to, service. Not grudgingly, but willing. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. I would submit to you that any ministry that spends the primary amount of its efforts gaining financial support is not a ministry that is of God. Because where God guides, He provides. So any shepherd, any person that's saying, if you give me money, I will pray for you. That's bull hockey. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The reality is any shepherd of God cares more about what he can give to the sheep than what he can gain. And we're going to see that in a couple of these New Testament examples I take you to, but God takes uh, very strongly against those who try to fleece the flock, wolves in sheep's clothing, and we are surrounded by them. There are many here and farther that 
that are only in it for what they can get. The reality is Jesus was nothing like that. He said a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is kind of interesting if you think about a shepherd because a shepherd is taking care of the flock all the time. Like a real, a pastor is the word, that's the Greek word, a shepherd is actually someone who's with the sheep all the time. King David was made into a godly king during his time as a shepherd. He slept with them. He was under the stars. When lions attacked the sheep, he had to kill them with his hands. There was no gun. There was no elephant gun. There was no AK-47. There was nothing. He had a slingshot, which is kind of like a gun in their day because the, you know, but there's all kinds of scientific studies. He didn't knock down uh, Goliath, by the way, by getting out Dennis the Menace's deal and going, kabam, I got you. No, what he did was he took one of those things and he released it, but he spent all of his time with the sheep practicing those things, being sober and being vigilant, giving his early years where he could have been dating or you know, doing whatever, taking care of the flock. Now, why does a shepherd have sheep? Well, in Israel, was, some of them were used as sacrificial sheep to get atonement for their sins. They had to shed blood at the temple. But there was also practical things. They would shear the sheep so they could make clothing. Here's the hard part. If you're not a good shepherd, you're going to shear the sheep when it's wintertime when they need it. Not in summertime when they can take it. And so caring more about the sheep than they do themselves, shepherds are to be servants, slaves, if you will, to the flock. And so he says there, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over them. Now, as I was reading this passage, he says, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. Well, he says there, shepherd the flock of God. This is God's flock we're talking about. Any person that's part of the church of God is not actually uh, the pastor's people. It's God's people. They're precious to him. He shed his blood for them. And so any shepherd that takes that lightly is not a good shepherd. But that said, think about who's writing this. It's Peter, right? Peter rejected Christ, and then in John chapter 21, the last chapter in John, Jesus, having been resurrected, showed up and he fed breakfast to the disciples. He had a bunch of fish there. He's cooking them over a fire. You know, my kind of meal. Not necessarily fish for breakfast, but over fire. I like cooking stuff over fire. And while he's talking, he kind of takes Peter aside, who has just recently rejected him, even cursed and said, I don't even know that guy. Leave me alone. Because he was trying to save his own skin. And Jesus comes to him, and he has a one-on-one conversation. He says, verse 15 of John 21 says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He says, Give to my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. So he says, feed my sheep. And then he says, take care of my sheep. 
He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? If you've ever had your spouse ask you, do you really love me? It's kind of overwhelming. Well, of course I do. Look at all the stuff I do. You know, but, um, you know, Peter's getting a little upset. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And there's a whole study in the word that he uses for love there. But for today's sake, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Then he said, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself. You walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Another will tie you up and carry you where you do not wish. And then he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So (laughs) any shepherd that's worth his salt first of all, has a relationship with Jesus. That should be Captain Obvious, but it's not always. And you can tell if a shepherd has a relationship with Jesus because Jesus has told him, you should feed my sheep. Teach them the word of God. Give them the words of life. It should be bread to us. He said to him a second time, and then Jesus said, take care of my sheep. It never says anything about how he's to care for himself. I'm so tired of the phrase self-care. You do not have to encourage people to take care of themselves. We do that very well. Put a knife to somebody's throat. They will always take care of themselves before anybody else. The kingdom of God is supposed to be different. We're supposed to forget about ourselves. Deny yourself is what Jesus said. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now, Jesus didn't just say that. He did it. He willingly stopped taking care of himself, left his heavenly throne, came down to live, I heard one guy describe it, among the maggots. We can't even comprehend what it was like to leave heaven. We can't comprehend what it's like to leave a throne. Most of us don't have thrones. Some of us might have our bark lounger. But that thing stinks. Mine does. (laughs) I always blame the kids for spilling stuff, but it's probably me. But that's what Jesus did. He left his throne to come and essentially crawl under a stump that's rotting with us maggots. Now, you might not consider yourself a maggot, but you don't see things from God's perspective. You just don't. We don't. We think pretty highly of ourselves. But Jesus said, love my sheep, take care of them. And then he told him, you're going to lay your life down for me. You're going to lay your life down for this testimony. So then in John chapter 10, in the same book, Jesus speaking talks about shepherds. Now, we could obviously go to Psalm 23 at this point. Many of you could probably quote it. And that's fine. You should do that after we do this here. But in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks about the true shepherd. Now, there were shepherds in those days, but here's the deal. Shepherds in their culture were usually thieves. They were not looked well upon. Um, They lived outside of town. They were treated kind of like lepers, but they were a necessary evil, if you will. But in John chapter 10, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So look at this. Verse 6 is my favorite verse of this whole section. He says, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Now, maybe some of you can relate to that. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? But we're not shepherds, so we wouldn't get it. They understood more of this than we probably do. But then he goes on to explain in verse 7, he says that, it says there that then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Here's the deal. They would have like a little corral set up for the sheep, and the sheep would stay in there for protection at night. But they wouldn't have some cattle panel or corral panel or hinged gate to close it to keep out predators. Do you know what the gate for the sheep was? The shepherd. He would lay in between the sheep and danger all night long. Now, that doesn't make for good sleep, but it makes for confident sheep. It doesn't make for good sleep, but it makes for confident sheep. They know their shepherd. They know his voice. They know his presence. I don't know about you guys, but sheep are weak. They cannot defend themselves at the first slightest bit of anything that makes them nervous. They get so anxious that they don't eat. <laughs> They're a lot like us. They, they get nervous. They get, they get flies in their eyes. They, they can't even concentrate. Um, that's why they anointed their heads with oil. That's what it is in Psalm 23. They would anoint their heads with oil, and it would keep the, the flies and the bugs away, and they wouldn't be distracted. And so there's so many other things that tie into that. But Jesus says here, I am the door. That's what he means. I lay between the sheep and danger. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out to find pasture. The only way into salvation is through Jesus. The thief does not come except to look at this, steal, to kill, and destroy. But he says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The shepherd takes care of the sheep. The thief comes in to rob, kill, and steal, to destroy, to, to devour the sheep. And so here's the deal. Any good shepherd will be like that. He will lay down his life. He will protect them at the cost of his own life. And he will also take care of them and provide for them. And so he says, don't do it begrudgingly, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Well, back there in John chapter 10, and this is the part that I forgot to read. Wait. Nope, sorry. Not John chapter 10. Matthew chapter 20. This phrase, not lording it over the sheep. He spoke this to his disciples. So Peter, everything he's saying here, he's echoing what he's learned from Jesus, the good shepherd. And in Matthew chapter 20, it says there that in verse 17, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside on the road and he had a little talk with them. Now, if you want to get somebody hyped up to serve and to go a place, you don't tell them what he's getting ready to tell them. You don't tell them, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, 
They will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, to scourge, and to crucify, and the third day he'll rise again. That's horrible news. So we're going to go into town anyway? They're going to string you up and we're just going to walk on in? Yep. They didn't understand why. And it seems as if they're not even concerned with what he just said. And in verse 20, it says, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from Jesus. He said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. You guys who have ever coached a sport, probably never had a parent come to you and say, Hey, I'd really like my son to play today. I'd like my daughter to get some playtime. Last week, she only got 15 minutes. Whatever. Parents do that, right? We, we want to look out for our kids, and so we look for ways to, hey, coach, you know, he's way better at shortstop than so-and-so. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, he's a gift to the team. Why are you benching him? Yeah, but the reality is, this is what she's doing. And Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? And because they're foolish and ignorant about what he's saying, instead of going, what do you mean? They go, oh yeah, we're able, whatever, just as long as we can sit by you. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, which he was speaking of his death. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's for those whom it is prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, of course, they turn on the two. Can't believe you guys asked for that, you know. Can't believe you guys got your mom to ask you for that. Uh, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. I wonder if the, some of them had the same thought. Like, I wonder who gets to be first in command. wonder who gets to be his, you know, his right-hand man. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know currently that the rulers of the godless world Lord it over them. Some of yours will say Gentiles. That just means those who are outside the covenant that God had with the Jews. They lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave." Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve, he came to give. An under-shepherd of the flock of God should have those same earmarks. Come to serve and to give. So, back here in 1 Peter, we have him exhorting them to do just this. Leaders must lead by example. Leaders must lead from the front. If you want your business to prosper, if you want your team to prosper, lead as a servant. Lead by example. It's the greatest way to lead anything. And then leaders must lead in humility, humbling themselves, being with the people, and recognize that reward comes later for those who lead like Jesus and lead people to Jesus. The leaders in their day led like rulers of this world. 
Jesus says woe unto those types of leaders. And if you look with me at Matthew chapter 23, we're not going to finish the chapter today. I really wanted to. Matthew chapter 23, he spends almost an entire chapter. Now, Jesus isn't speaking in chapters, obviously. But he spends almost an entire chapter rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees for this very behavior, lording it over the people, causing their leadership, caused them to be pushed away from God, not to him. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the prominent seat, or Moses' seat, as a judge over the people. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, notice this, observe it and do it. What they're teaching is right. The way they're going about doing it themselves, ignore that. He says, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. Hey, there's another thing to watch out for. A pastor or a shepherd or an elder or a deacon who's claiming to be a leader, and yet they're saying one thing and doing another. I invite you to point that out in my life because I need that. My wife does. My children do, by the way. Well, Dad, that's not what you're doing. Oh. So I can either go, well, I'm the dad and that's that, or I can go, you're right. Maybe this is a way I need to be corrected. But then he says, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. And then they change their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats at synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called men by men, rabbi, teacher. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. And so he goes on, but he says, woe unto you. And he, he calls them hypocrites, and he calls them out for specific things throughout the chapter. But my point in saying all of this is that humility should be a part of leadership. And Paul simplifies it. If you want to read what qualifies a man to be a leader in the church of God, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. But then he says in verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your cares or worries upon him, for he cares for or about you. He cares for you. And so we're going to stop there today because the hardest part about the kingdom of God for us is that it calls for humility to enter it. The kingdom of God is built of sheep, but the kingdom of God starts with humility. Now, here's the hard part. We don't like to need anybody. We don't like to need anything. But the reality is, if you are a follower of Christ, you're confessing, and your confession should be, I tried it my own way. I failed miserably. I needed Jesus, and I still need him. Jesus, save me from myself. Save me from the sin that I've committed, the judgment that I deserve because of my rejection of your leadership. Here's the reality. Whether or not a church leader 
of any church has exemplified these characteristics I've spoke about today that does not change the character of Jesus Christ. That does not change how his kingdom works. So with that being said, many don't come to church anymore because some church leader burnt them. They got burnt. They were hypocrites. But what I want to point out is each one of us has hypocrisy built into us because we just don't really know our own hearts. God's not interested in our outward actions. He's interested in our heart. And what he said is that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you're full of pride, it will come out in what you say and how you interact and how you lead or the example you give to others. And so this morning, as we get ready to take communion, I want to point out that Jesus exemplified this all the way down to the very last moment of his service to his apostles. Peter knows what service and humility looks like because he saw service and humility face to face. In John chapter 13, he's getting ready to do this, what we're going to celebrate here, this Lord's Supper, where he literally said, this is my body, take of this in remembrance of me and in looking forward to my kingdom. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness, the removal of sin. He said, here I am giving my all, getting ready to. And right, he, he's got no reason to have to do anything else. He's getting ready to die for the sins of the world. But as his last act of service to his disciples, you know what he did? He took off his garment. He wrapped it around his waist. He took the form of a slave and he washed their poopy feet. They had been walking in an agrarian society along the road where every vehicle was pulled by an animal with exhaust. And he literally got down on the floor. He washed their feet. Not one of them offered to wash anyone else's feet, which was customary in any house. Not anyone assumed the position of slave except for Jesus. And so as Jesus washes their feet, he showed them where greatness came from because the one who blesses is greater than the one who receives the blessing. The one who serves is the one who's greater than the one who receives service. And yet he did it willingly, not grudgingly, not for dishonest gain. Jesus didn't have anything when he died. The one garment that he had, they took from him and they gambled for it. They jammed a crown of thorns. They did everything to him that would cause him to go, you know what? Never mind, I'm out. He could have. And yet he continued to willingly lay down his life. And so I celebrate that because I want to be like that. Because when someone has witnessed the suffering of Christ, when someone exemplifies that kind of servitude, the people that experience it, some of them it makes them mad, like, you're just holier than thou. There are always people that will reject kindness. But I don't know about you, when I realized that Jesus served me despite my wretchedness and the specific sins I committed, not only against those around me, but against him, what a savior, what a leader. I decided I no longer didn't want to be like so-and-so and didn't want to be like so-and-so. Now I want to be like Jesus because his love is pure. His love is strong. His love is encapsulating. Encapsulating? It's enrapturing. It wins us. 
over and over and over. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm 12 years into this deal. And the Lord allows me just to see a glimpse of what's really going on in my heart. And he did that on vacation. You know, we were in a tight confine with our kids. And I realized I'm not a big fan of the kids that I love. You know, they, they were driving me nuts. And I saw the patience of God with me. Here's the reality. Moses was supposed to exemplify Christ. And he was told by God, I want you to go speak to the rock and water's going to pour forth from it. I want to provide water for this grumbling and complaining million of people. And Moses was so fed up with them, he goes, fine, I'll speak to him. And he struck the rock and water came out. They still got the water they needed. But because of that, because of Moses misrepresenting God, he never got to enter into the promised land. So God humbled Moses and said, you're not going to get to go into the land. I just read it this morning. Numbers 27. He tells him, Moses, you're not going to get to go into the land, but I want you to go up to the top of this mountain so you can see the land. Gee, thanks. You don't get to go, but I'd like for you to see what you're going to miss out on. So he gets up there. He looks over the land and he says, I, I'm going to take you just like I did Aaron. You're going to go to be with your fathers, which is an Old Testament way of saying you're getting ready to die. And Moses had been humbled to the point by God's correction that his last wish to the Lord was, but who's going to lead these people? Because if you take me from them, I'm their leader right now, but I don't want them to be like sheep without a shepherd is exactly what he said. Which when Jesus looked over Jerusalem, what did he say about them? He said, oh, they're scattered like sheep without a shepherd. They had many teachers, but they had no shepherd. They had no one that really cared about them. And so we see Moses was humbled, and he came to the point where he said, man, who's going to lead them? Because otherwise they're not going to have any direction. They're just going to wander out here. They're going to perish. And he rose up Joshua. He said, you're going to take Joshua before the congregation. You're going to lay your hands on him. You're going give, to give his authority, the authority I gave you, give it to him. They're going to follow him into the promised land. Joshua is going to go in, which is interesting because the word Joshua, the name Joshua is Yeshua. The Lord is my salvation, Jesus. And so um, all that said, we celebrate during this meal. So greatness comes through humility. And I want to ask you this morning, as we sing this last song, and as you're invited to come and partake in the Lord's Supper, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've humbled yourself, if you're a witness of his suffering, if you're someone that's a partaker of the glory we talked about this morning, come and eat freely. If you've never repented of your sin and laid down and said, Lord, I want you to be my Savior. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And God darn it, people really don't like me if they really knew me. If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, if you never stopped and, and asked him to be your Savior, I'd, I want you to let the cup pass. Don't come up and get this stuff, but don't leave today without praying with somebody that you want to make that commitment. You want to surrender your life to the Lord and then come take. So that said, we're going to take communion and I'm going to lead you through it after the song. But just spend some time and think about these qualifications of an elder these qualifications of a servant, do they, are they seen in you? Are you? Could you be described as some of these qualities? Because it's not just for elders, it's for anybody who's a follower of Christ. We should look like Christ. And if it's not, welcome to the crew. None of us have fully grasped this yet. 
but maybe humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm not there yet, but I want to be. And and watch to see what he's going to do. So, Father, um, thank you for this word. Thank you for the representation of Christ we see in the Old Testament and in the New. Thank you for humbling Peter. Thank you for his life drastically changing. Ultimately, he laid down his life for the sheep. And we're grateful for his testimony. Lord, if there's hope for Peter, there's hope for me. And so this morning, I pray that as we have this time of communion, that it would not just be with each other, but that we would commune and break bread with you. You told us to do this until you return. And so until we see you face to face, like we talked about earlier, this is the, this is the best that it gets. And so Lord, help us to share this meal with you, to contemplate what you've done, to look at your character, to be in awe of who you are, and to enjoy you for who you are and what you've done. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that you're moving on their hearts and you desire to to bring them into closer fellowship with you, I pray that this would be a time of, of them just being honest with you, that you'd break them down so they can be built back up. You're not surprised by their sin. You're not surprised by their weakness, but you are calling them to repent of it. And so I pray, Father, that you would have full control over that, that they would respond to your goodness, your kindness, your service. Lord, you've served us all, and I'm so grateful. So, Father, we just begin this time of fellowship and communion with you, and we ask, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.